Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 51. I do have some of the verses printed, but you'll need to have your Bibles open. You can use the Pew Bible if necessary, but you'll get the most out of this if you're able to walk through the verses as I walk through them with you. Um, it's hard to divide this section, and I apologize for the extensive outline. I don't like to put that much there often because I don't want to make it more complex. But we are taking um, bite-sized pieces out of a prophecy that's pretty long, and so sometimes it's necessary uh, to do it this way. I hope this works well. I pray that it does. Um, we are in a section where God is speaking through his prophet to those who have Confess faith in the servant. They are people who are seeking after God's righteousness within the people of God, Judah. I want to differentiate. There's Judah. You might think of the church in this large sense. Um, but on the large, God is disciplining the nation, the people of God, because of their disbelief. Because of their following the other nations. Violating the covenant. Being unfaithful servants, unlike the faithful servant to come, Christ. Uh, But within the people of God, Judah, there are those known as, the the commentators call them the remnant, uh, the remnant of the faithful. Um, They still have to undergo the discipline that the larger church has brought upon themselves, but within this, they do trust in Christ. They trust in God's Redeemer. They trust in God's redemption. That's always the way of salvation. I mean, it's always, always, always been this way. We must rest in God's provision of the Savior. In the Old Testament, they look forward to the perfect servant, to the Messiah, to the anointed one, to Christ. We look back upon his finished work, and we rest upon it. They rest forward, we rest backwards, but the point is, it's rest and it's trust in God's provision. So in this section, the last part, well, the first verses of chapter 51, and now into the second half of chapter 51... He's largely still speaking to those who believe. And those who believe are understanding what's happening, and they are asking God to deliver. And so God responds. So I have for you two sections. I'll start by reading, and then we'll look at the whole of the verses 9 down to 23. And in the middle of it, there's a bit of a change where God goes from speaking to just this remnant to the whole of the people of God. I hope that helps set the stage in understanding. I know when I first started studying Isaiah, a lot of it is like, there'd be individual verses that were inspiring or they'd make sense and they drew me to to worship, but I didn't get how it all fit together. And so that's what I'm trying to do is give us that picture, and I hope this does that for you. Here now as I read God's holy word, I'll read three verses from the first portion of our text and then the last few there on your outline. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, God speaking not just to the remnant, but to the whole of the nation, since the remnant has called to his attention their confession. Verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. 
There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are certainly edified, built up, encouraged by the beauty of your word, the particulars of the commands, the explanation of our hearts and our need for you. I pray that you would make this passage clear to us. I pray that it would build up your people. I ask, O Lord, that our lives would be changed as a result of what we are exposed to you by your holy word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice that I have as a a bit of a proposition that when we confess our sins, we see God pouring out his assurance. I want to bring a bit of a clarifier. Confessing of sin never goes alone. When you confess sin, you're confessing several things at the same time. Maybe just saying confession, honest or genuine confession, brings about God's outpouring of assurance. And what I mean is, when you're confessing sin, you're also confessing at the same time that the one you confess to is able to forgive, has provided the way for you to be forgiven, or you wouldn't confess. And you also confess his greatness at the same time. I mean, confession of sin is multifaceted. It never stops just with saying to the God of the universe, we're sinners, or we have sinned. It also says you are the great God who will forgive. Otherwise, I'd be running away from him. I wouldn't be confessing. He, he is able to forgive and gives a way of forgiveness, and he is the great God, uh, the only one who we should confess to in an ultimate sense. So really, this is about a genuine confession that comes from the people who really trust in the Lord's servant. And God sees this among a few and then speaks to the whole uh, what they need to hear once again. Remember the opening verses? Listen and look. Uh, Remember salvation. Remember how I have saved you. This is the context that leads us to this response where there's a a genuine confessing to God that they believe and that they take ownership of the things that he has spoken. And this is coming from those uh, who are in this remnant. Let's look at what this genuine confession, uh, the attributes of it in the first three verses. First you see what happens. A genuine confession will, will have a certain uh, movement to cry out for help. And we find this in the opening verse. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. So after for eight verses, um, reminding them, renewing them of his gospel promise to save them through the servant... Uh, for this renewal of gospel truth is never old to people who believe it. And so the response is uh, to cry for God's help, to recognize God for who he is as Savior, and to cry for help. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Um, You can imagine uh, somebody trying to wake somebody who's sleeping and shaking them. Awake, help me, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Now, part of the prayer from the faithful here is a reference to the, the way God redeemed in the past. This is a great way to pray, by the way. This is very practical for us. As we're praying, think of all the ways that God has answered prayer, delivered his people, redeemed his people. And that helps us put into perspective the thing we're praying about, but it also really draws our attention to the greatness of God and his ability to answer our prayer if it's his will. But look at the referent here, this this historic moment that he's, the, the, the authors or the people are referring to. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago, 
Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, this isn't another one of those brutal Old Testament passages about cutting a person into pieces. This is Rahab, uh, the other name for Egypt at this time. Now, we know this because in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, that's been a while for us, it says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. So Rahab is a name given to Egypt in that time. Now, you remember Egypt, not the world power they used to be. I mean, Assyria was more powerful for a time than Babylonia, but you have uh, Egypt, who is always considered with great respect um, a subdued power, but a power for history. I mean, compared to the other empires, uh, it was around for the longest time. And God, you were able to subdue Rahab or Egypt. You showed yourself by rescuing your people from the greatest nation ever at that time. Verse 10, or verse 9 again. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? There are scholars who note in this time frame, uh, Egypt was considered a wily, monstrous serpent. Even though they were not as powerful as they used to be, they were still sneaky and still could strike at different moments. And that's probably why... uh, God's defeat, or at least his, his targeted defeat of Egypt for Israel's sake when he released them from, from their bondage, is referred to this way. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? God, you did these great things for us in the past. You've declared to us your salvation. So the faithful say, awake, O Lord, your arm. Show us that kind of redemption, that kind of deliverance again. That's the prayer from the people of God, if you see what I'm saying. Now, as I mentioned to you, I think this is a practical help for us in our prayers. Remembering what prayer is. It's an offering up to God for those things desirable to to us, but according to his will. So we recognize what we want might not be God's will, but we offer it up to him. And as we we pray those prayers, we say those prayers, we think of what we're praying, we compare it against his word, and we think about um, how we, maybe we should change our prayer. Maybe our prayer isn't right, or we should keep praying and see what the Lord may do, what his will is. I think this gives us a bit of a model. Awake, O Lord, and then think in terms of the things that he has done. Sort of like this. If I would say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm confessing. I'm saved by your sovereign mercy through Christ's death and resurrection on my behalf. There's no other salvation I can have. You're the only redeemer. You are the God of redemption. You redeemed a people, just a few people, all deserve to die, but you redeemed a few in the ark. You did this great thing, this incredible act. You redeemed Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan place. You brought a great redemption to Abraham. You gave him faith in you so that he could lay hold of your promises. You are the God who redeems. You redeemed Joseph out of the pit that his brothers threw him in, out of Potiphar's house, and put him in the house of Pharaoh for your purposes. You're the great redeeming God. That's what you do. You are a redeemer. And you redeemed your people from Egypt in the most miraculous way. Two million people you bring out of the most powerful nation on earth's grip grip, in the most miraculous way. Lord, could you please help me with this health struggle I'm having, with these financial hardships or this personal uh, relationship that's breached? Now, when I pray that prayer, I'm not praying some prayer of prosperity like God has to do this. 
I'm simply saying, God, I know who I'm praying to. I'm praying to the God who delivers. So I'm going to bring this desire of my heart to you. And if it's not your will, I still believe that I'm praying to the God who delivers. And it's just not your will. And you'll give me grace to deal with that. You know, when these remnant uh, people prayed like this, they did not receive immediate deliverance. It was long after that the nation, the people of God, saw any deliverance from Babylon's hand when Persia came. So it's not a promise that God will do the thing you're asking. But it's a statement that the God of all power is the one who I speak to. If he doesn't do it, it's because he willed not to, and there's reason for it, and he'll give us grace for it. Well, that's a different way of looking at prayer, isn't it? And I think it's the right way to look at prayer. It actually does more to change us in our relationship to God and his will. It certainly doesn't change God's will, thankfully. We don't want God's will to be ours. Can you imagine what the world would look like? Well, you do see it in some cases, at least on an immediate level, a human level, certainly not the sovereign level, as we were reminded by our confession of faith earlier. Look at verse 11, though. You'll see something else that comes forth from a genuine confession. There's a certain uh, commitment to praise and worship that comes uh, when we confess these things. We confess our sins and who God is and his greatness, and there is something that pours forth from it. And as they bring forth their their desires to God, it's, it's like they're saying, Lord, this is what will happen if you deliver. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. You'll be worship God if, if we're delivered. And that's another focus we have to think. The reason we desire redemption is so that we can give the proper worship that God deserves. And that's where we'll find what it says next. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Why? Because God ransomed them. They, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, the motive for confessing or crying out to God is a renewed joy and dependence. That's what happens when we confess. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Zion usually describes Jerusalem. It's the central place of worship in this time period. The ransomed or the redeemed of the Lord will worship as God calls them to worship. That's what will happen, O Lord, if you deliver. We'll give you the praise you deserve. That's the reason. You know, that's why we come to the Lord's house every day together as a corporate body, uh, as the people of God. Because God's redeemed us. We want to come and give him praise and give him all the glory that he deserves for what he has done in redeeming us. That's, you know... God's majesty and his greatness are worthy of our worship if he had never saved us. But we could not give him the glory he deserves for his majesty and his goodness if he didn't save us. We have to be saved to see who he is. And when we're saved and we see who he is, when we're ransomed and we know who he is, then joy enters because now we know what our purpose is. Our purpose is to focus on the glory of God and worship him for it. And that then colors the rest of your life in a beautiful way. Many, many believers... Genuine believers, they trust Christ for their salvation. They rest upon his finished work. But they sometimes forget or don't know, we've been redeemed to give praise to the God who deserves it. That will set your life in the right course. Then the things that you do, you recognize as an extension of the worship that you are to give God. So you work hard at everything you do for God's glory, whatever it is. Now that may seem like a repetitive theme around here. We come back to that. But think of how you may have been before discovering that. I remember that distinctly. I knew I was a believer, but I couldn't understand what, what, what was I supposed to do now. And it, was, and, and it was difficult. It was a disconnect between my purpose and my being saved. Well, I was saved to worship him. And so 
all my focus comes through that as opposed to um, doing things that I didn't think were for myself. I thought I was honoring the Lord in it, but I really was aimless about why I was seeking after it. But here he's just simply saying, Lord, save us, and then you will see. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. Why? Because it's not self-focused anymore. We're redeemed from that. They'll obtain gladness and joy. It'll be upon their heads. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, verses 9 through 11 represent the response or the confession of the faithful, the remnant. Verse 12 down to 23 combines things. It starts out by giving an immediate response of comfort. See it there with me. This is what God does when we make, bring this kind of genuine confession. Very simply, I, I am he who comforts you. That's verse 12. That's his first response to the faithful. When you pour out your confession of sin, your confession of his greatness, your confession of dependence upon him, he says to you very personally, I, I am he who comforts you. This is a very exclusive claim on his part. There are various means that God will use to bring comfort into our life, but he wants us to know that ultimate comfort comes from him. It's just the way it's written. I, I am he who comforts you. He claims sole responsibility and ability to provide what we need in comfort. It means to relieve us from pain. This means to ease our tumult or our, or our tension, to provide solace. I, I am he who comforts you. This is a constant uh, picture of something God and God alone can bring. Paul writing to the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He wants us to know that's where real comfort comes. I kind of chuckled this uh, earlier when Nathan mentioned the, the knee injury. Uh, Nate, uh, Nicholas Ellen, he actually, to be accurate, broken knee. Nathan, that's not a very medical way of describing what happened. For Nicholas Ellen, he tore his patella tendon, which is your kneecap. So that means it would have been on the outside of his leg from underneath his skin if it tore up from the, the bottom. If you could imagine that for a moment. Um, I dislocated my knee completely. That's different. In, in my case, I asked the doctor if I could go hunting the next day. Poor Nicholas, he's laid up and can't come to the B3 conference. I want to make sure he hears this. Uh, but it was an awful experience when it happened. I remember sitting there, laying on the, on the, it was indoor soccer game. I was laying there on the floor, and I remember several of the brothers that are here now today were there and saw it. Levi Gillen, one of our beloved deacons, isn't here earlier. He ran out almost crying when he saw it happen. He's, he played college football Division One. He said, they kept us from seeing all that stuff. Well... Here it is. So here's pastors there with his knee out of joint. And I remember Chico Chiraboga holding my head like I was breathing my last and kind of comforting me. He was comforting me. It was like a war scene with a guy who was ready, you know, give me the morphine. And then I was saying give me the morphine, but it wasn't for that. And then a Mexican gentleman who I didn't know was on the other team gave me an old sock from his duffel bag and told me to bite down on it. And I decided I would just wait till the paramedics came. These brothers were trying to bring me comfort, and it was distracting me a little bit, but it was not bringing, I mean, the pain kept coming. I mean, it was just nonstop until the paramedic got there and first gave me something. But it was really a couple hours before they finally put me completely out and took care of getting it back into joint. People provide comfort. They mean well, but it ultimately doesn't remove the pain. God can take the pain away in the true sense. He's the only one. He is the one who comforts. I, I am he who comforts you. He's who we need. And that's his first response when we confess. When you confess sin, when you confess God's greatness, when you confess exactly who God is as he reveals himself, he responds by comforting you. You have a sense of relief. You, you understand who's on the throne. 
And it really does alter the demeanor of your life and your outlook. And that's what we see happen for those who receive this word. He does something else. Um, He reminds us, in love, you know, the problem that we face most often that leads us to discomfort, to the situation that Israel ultimately found itself in. Look at verse 12 and verse 13, as there's a revelation about our true weakness. This is probably the biggest weakness we have that leads us to the most discomfort. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass. Do you see what he's saying? I, I'm the one who comforts I'm the God of the universe. But you're scared of people who are going to die. You're worried about people, mere mortals. Your fear is misdirected, is what God says to his people who love him. We confess our sin. We confess his greatness. He says, okay, if you confess my greatness, why are you scared of man? Why am I small and man big? Why is that? What a great question. What a great way to refocus where our real fear should be in the biblical sense of fear. Who are you, verse 12, that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? They had to be recalibrated, and in verse 13 he continues. Notice how he describes himself or in, in, in their place, misplacement of fear. And, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You know, the, everything on the earth is created, and you're scared of that stuff, but I'm the one who made it all. I, the fear you should have should be directed towards me. If you fear God, you will not have that discomfort that you are experiencing. And you fear continually, verse 13 in the middle, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. You're more worried about the Babylonians or the Assyrians before them and the Egyptians before them. You're worried about the wrong people. When he sets himself to destroy, and where is the wrath of the oppressor? In other words, these are nothing before me, God says. Our fear has to be focused in the right direction. I love what R.C. Sproul teaches about uh, concerning fear, the right fear. Uh, in the chapel at Heritage, we, we have the elementary chapel. One of our prayers of confession is one of the ones we use here, and we talk about fearing the Lord. And I always want to stop and tell the, the children what we mean by fear because they can think of it as being scared of or servile. Listen to what Sproul says. I think it helps us remember what a proper fear is like. Sproul says, The servile fear is a kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has for his tormentor, the jailer, or the executioner. It's It's that kind of dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by another person. I mean, that would be the fear that Judah would have for, say, Babylon, or we might have for other people. Or it's the kind of fear that a slave would have at the hands of a malicious master who would come with the whip and torment the slave. Servile fear refers to a posture of servitude toward a a malevolent owner, not a benevolent one one who is maliciousness. And we, we are fearful of that kind of thing. But God's saying we should not fear that. We should have a fear, but it shouldn't be like that, and it should be towards God. Sproul says, uh, summarizing Luther's great teaching on this, Luther distinguished between that and what he called filial fear. That's drawn from the Latin concept, which we get the idea of family. It refers to the fear that a child has for his father. In this regard, Luther is thinking of a child who has a tremendous respect and love for his father or mother and who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of security and love. 
That's the right fear. That's where our fear should be. And we should trust him because he controls and he orders all things. Again, back to our confession of faith. When we were reading through the confession or the catechism answers, it so wonderfully captures the Bible's teaching and revelation about who God is. And God's saying, you're worrying about people. That's your main problem, and that's helpful to us. Our problem is so keyed on focusing on man rather than God. Verse 13 again. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He calls us to a renewed dependence on him, and that's what we find in verse 14 through 16. Remember, at this point, he's still talking to the people who are confessing their trust in him as redeemer. It'll change down in verse 17 a bit, but right now, look at verse 14 to 16 where you see a a call for humble dependence uh, to his people, us. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. So he's going to keep us from ultimate death, eternal death, the pit, and he'll provide for us daily. That's what God will do for us. But we are to be humble, and there's no greater picture of humility than bowing down. He who is bowed down, verse 14, shall speedily be released. Almost as quickly as you bow your head, God gives release. What a picture of humility, and I think bowing is, is the ultimate sign of this. I think this is why it's the predominant way people present themselves before the Lord. Bowing was, um, in antiquity, when this comes uh, to us in the most vivid terms, it was basically like going to the person who's your superior and bowing down and, and basically offering your head to them. It sounds kind of crass to us, but that's the primary way of, of execution, of killing somebody in these days, is by taking off their head. Well, if you bow down to him, you're saying, my life is yours. I am in a defenseless position, and I'm giving you the, exposing my neck. I mean, there's no greater show of humility physically that one could have towards an, towards an enemy. But this is to God. We, we give ourselves to God. We bow to God, and he who is bowed down shall speedily be re- released. When we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he lifts up those who humble themselves. But he puts down those who are proud. The Lord who controls uh, even the seas. Look at verse 15. And the powerful waves that swell up, he is our Lord. He says, I am the Lord your God. What a beautiful response to our confession. He tells us, your problem is you're trusting in man. You're fearing in man. You should not fear man. Bow down to me, and you will not go down to the pit. You won't have any lack in the food you need to eat. I am the Lord, verse 15, your God. Very personal. Who stirs up the sea so that waves roar. I can move those mysterious oceans out there with the seas that come at you. I stir those up, and I am your God. I can stir those up. I can take care of your little life, is what he's saying. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your personal God is the great God, who's the Lord of hosts, and he's your personal God. Verse 16. Lord means master. Lord means leader. means commander. And he's the Lord of hosts, and he's our Lord. Verse 16, And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and laying to Zion, saying to Zion, You are my people. How personal. You picture a person finding a small, helpless bird, a baby bird on the ground, and you pick up the baby bird in your palm of your hand and you put your other hand over and you shelter that bird so nothing can get it. 
and you find a way to put it back where it's supposed to go in the, in the safety of its nest. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. In the same hands that would pick you up and cover you like this, those same hands established the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. And this God says to his people, you are my people. What a, what a sacred picture of God's love for his people. Love, his love for his redeemed. His love for his ransomed. Now, verse 17 there is a bit of a change that you will note. And I believe this is where he's now saying, after he's given this comfort to those who brought this initial request of deliverance, now he's speaking to the entirety of the people of God. How does this translate today? It's not easy always to depict, because there's lots of people who say they're Christians. But generally, those who call upon the name of Christ will say, will, will, will say that's God's church. And it could take various expressions, and I know there's lots of discussion of what our true church might be. We're just one local expression of God's church. I believe that there is a sense in which God speaks generally like this to the people of God. And there will be pockets, local congregations, I hope we're one, where we genuinely rest completely in the work of Christ for our salvation. There are others that are convoluted about this. And there are true believers mixed in with those who are still trusting in their works. And I'm sure any local congregation has that. But their whole even bigger churches filled with people that have lots of misunderstanding in this. And I think there's times when God just speaks to the people of God like this and wants the whole to hear and, and, and respond. And I think that's what you have here now as he speaks now to all of Judah, not just this faithful remnant. Notice, remember back in verse 9, it started awake, awake. Now verse 17. Wake yourself. You wake up, God says, or get woke as some of the kids will say it. Wake up. You wake up. Listen, O nation. So he turns his gaze from the the faithful remnant and the comfort he's giving to something bigger that he's calling the people of God to. Wake yourself, verse 17. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is the nation now of, of God who has fallen into God's discipline because they have walked away from him. Now the picture is pretty stark when you're talking about waking somebody up. And kids, if you ever gone in to wake up your parents when they're sleeping before? If you haven't, try what I'm saying. You go in and you, you, you move them a little bit and, they, and sometimes they will fake like they're asleep, hoping you'll go away. If you think that's the case, what you need to do next is jump on top of them and then really shake them. So, the reason why that's funny is because it's so it's, there's nothing more annoying. It's so, you're asleep and then you woke up abruptly and it's, it's tough to come out of your stupor. You know, you're staggering, and this is, this is uh, it's just tough getting up. Wake, God says. So he's not saying you're dead. You can hear, or you can be moved to hear, but it's going to take a shake-up. It's going to take a shake-up. And guess what, people of God, he says to the nation, I've been shaking you up. I've, you've been drinking from the dregs of my judgment. You've felt and tasted my discipline. Don't you get what it's like for you? How this is discipline upon you? Wake up from this and see the message that comes in the verses before about his salvation, about what happens when we confess our sins to him, when we confess his greatness, when we rely upon him. He comforts us. And he's saying to the whole, why don't you wake up from your stupor? You're looking at the wrong stuff. Verse 17 who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the, the cup of staggering. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up. Verse 18, 
This is more of a description of the, the discipline and judgment they were under in their state of distrust. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has borne up, brought up. When the church um, does not follow the voice of the Lord on salvation, in particular on his word connected to it, God will judge in discipline. And one of the things he'll do is give them, give, he'll remove good leadership. He'll, he'll give you a vacancy of leadership. And you'll, sta- you'll think you're following something, but it's nothing. It's just, em- it's just emptiness. And, and this is kind of what is a sign of discipline upon us. When the leaders in our midst are weak, there's none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Again, more signs of discipline. Verse 20, your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street, like an antelope in, the net, in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Oftentimes, the duress that we are enduring is our own doing. Not always, but in this case, he's referring to this disobedience of the people of God as a whole. God uses a circumstance of oppression and poverty even, of a lack of leadership, aimlessness, hopelessness, comfortlessness, all of this for them to turn to him. This is why he brings this to their life. And he calls to their attention. When he senses um, confession in the remnant, he speaks to the whole again to call them to repentance. And he closes with a reminder one that is developed more fully in the next part of chapter 52, as we will see next week. But he closes this section by reminding about what he always does with his enemies. He vindicates his people. Of those beautiful renewal promises, this is, this is one that's tough. Verse 21, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Those of you who are who are not seeing straight, those whose judgment is obviously impaired. Uh, you're, you're numbered among my people, but you're plagued with wrong understanding. Thus says your Lord, verse 22, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. Uh, the remnant has spoken, God's bringing something of renewal to them, and I'm going to take away this discipline that you've been under. Verse 23, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground, like, the, like a street for them to pass over. God will ultimately bring vindication to his name and to anybody who is united to him by faith in the servant. But this is another opportunity for him to speak widely to Judah. For them to hear. It's another opportunity for us to hear. Now, it's always for us to ask the question Are we in the faithful remnant who really rests upon the finished work of Christ? Is that where we find our complete sufficiency? Is that what we stand before God with? Or do we hide something in our heart that makes us think there's some other thing that we want to put before God to be, that He'd be impressed by? If that's us, we're, we're staggering into the wider place of misunderstanding that's very dangerous. Let's be humble. Ask God to awaken. Lord, show us your arm. You've redeemed from all of history that you've shown us. 
Help us, whatever your will may be. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your powerful word. We are grateful for this prophecy. Lord, I pray that you would take what we have just studied and apply it to each person personally, just the way you would have them to grow in grace, but to us corporately, that we would be a people who are humbled and bowed down before you, who recognize our need to trust in you completely, but struggle. We struggle to conjure this faith. We need you to give us this faith. And where we have faith, we need more of it. So please build us up by this word preached and by the sacrament that we will partake in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together sing. It's not like the most friendly title to the song, but a lot of scripture is pretty pointed and blunt, and you'll see the comfort from the song as we sing it. Let's stand and sing 322, O quickly come, dread judge of all. One and two. We'll stand as we sing.